Alrighty, let's start off by praying. Father, Lord, we thank you so much again for the opportunities that you give us. Um, we thank you for your love and we ask, as we always do, uh, as we learn about these things, that you would just take us over and we would be able to love those uh, through your love, that our conversations would be effective, uh, but most of all, it would just be seasoned by you and we can get out of the way. Um, bless our time together today. Give us learning and wisdom. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen. All right. So, like I mentioned last week, we're going to be starting on atheism. Um, because when you take a look at unbelief, that's kind of the root cause, right? If somebody has no belief in God or any type of higher authority, um, that is where we have to start that conversation. And I wanted to introduce atheism today because it dawned on me, um, most folks think, well, an atheist is pretty simple, just someone that doesn't believe in God. Not quite. Um, there's, there's different levels and, and you'll end up seeing that. <laughs> so, <laughs> yep, here we are. So the word um, atheist, so the English language is pretty funny. If you take something, theist, it means someone that believes in, in God, and you put an A in front of it, it negates that word. Atheist is someone that doesn't believe in God, right? Like the Greek word muse means to think. You put an A in front of it. A muse means literally to not think. And we have parks where we can go spend thousands of dollars to literally not think. <laughs> Amusement parks. <laughs> so... Atheism, in its most basic terms, means, quote, no God, right? Um, it's the lack of a belief and or a belief that there is no God. Now, let me, we're going to come back to that. So there's two types, right? So you can have an atheist that is a lack of belief in a God or an atheist that has a belief that there is no God. You're like, well, isn't that the same thing? It's not, especially when you start to talk to these folks. No, it's not the same thing. So or either a lack of belief in a God or a solid belief that there is no God. So let me pose it to the class. Which conversation do you think is going to be more difficult? Belief that there is. Exactly. The belief that there is no God. That's going to be a more because difficult. Because they solidified it. Yes. Because they have solidified it in their minds. That will be a more difficult conversation. So by contrast. Oh, yeah. Then where does that come like with agnostic. Mm -hmm. Okay, so where does the agnostic come in with the atheist? Yep, we'll get there. Oh, okay. <laughs> yep, yep, we'll get there. So contrast then, um, theism is the belief that there is a God and you can know him. Hey. Come here. Oh, we're back. Or give me your baby. Yeah, somebody wants to hold the baby with all the hair. <laughs> so most atheists don't consider themselves anti-theists, but merely non-theists. Let me rephrase that. A lot of atheists that you meet usually are pretty good moral people, right? They don't have, they, they weren't like me. Um, I was a special case where I was anti-theist. I had this seething hate against God. Most atheists aren't that way. Um, they're just non-theists. They're just like, hey, man, if that works for you, great. It's just not really my bag at the moment. So just leave me alone about the God talk. And I've encountered many atheists who claim that atheism 
isn't a belief system. I tend to disagree um, because when I was an atheist, it was my belief system. It was my faith. Since there's no official atheist organization, um, nailing down which description can be difficult and it just floats with whomever you're talking to. So nevertheless, here's some definitions that I've pulled off the internet that are offered um, by atheists. Whichever definition you accept, um, atheism actually denies God. So here's one. An atheist is someone who believes and or knows that there is no God. An atheist lacks belief in a God. An atheist exercises no faith in the concept of God at all. An atheist is someone who is free from religious oppression and bigotry. This one's popular. An atheist is someone who is a free thinker, free from religion and its ideas. That one is also popular. Those are, so those bottom two are having a big resurgence in today's culture and society. Why? What are the, what are the underlying tenets of those two? The underlying tenets are the same things that I used to believe, that in order to believe in a Christian God, you have to turn off your brain, right? You have to abandon all faith and reason and just become an absolute imbecile. And that's the underlying idea of this, that an atheist is a specific uh, higher enlightened person. It's, it's somebody that has more knowledge than we do. We're just the sheep uh, being led and we can't get past all the centuries of indoctrination from the church. So there's two main categories of atheists when you, when you talk to them on the street or your family members. <laughs> it's okay. I was just going to send a message to Cindy and Blake that we have a classroom. Oh. Because okay. I was wondering if maybe they, I'm sorry. Oh, yeah, no, no, no. I, yeah, I was, I was wondering. They went home? They went home. Okay. Oh, okay. Working on a doggy door. Okay. okay. <laughs> hey, Bronze. No, no, not at all, Bronze. So, like I said, there's two main categories of atheists. Strong and weak, and of course there's the stuff in between. So strong atheists, those are the ones that emphatically claim and believe that no God exists. It can't. Okay? They expressly denounce the Christian God along with any other God. So we're not, we're not the only ones on the... Uh, chopping block for them. It's the Hindu God, everyone else, okay? Strong atheists are usually much more aggressive when you talk to these folks. Um, they try to shoot holes in our theistic beliefs. Again, I was, I was this one. This one was me, okay? The strong atheist. They like to use logic and anti-biblical evidence to denounce God's existence. Um, they're active, often aggressive, and they openly believe and openly state that there is no God. Okay, I'm going to pause there real quick. Now, uh, the strong atheists like to use logic, right? However, it's catastrophic once logic is used back on them. Because what's the biggest tenet of the strong atheists? They claim that they know there is no God. Well, how's that possible? Exactly. You cannot claim, you cannot prove the non-existence of a thing. I can make the claim that there's no gold in Alaska. How do I validate that claim? I would have to completely explore literally every square inch of Alaska, both in width and don't forget depth as well, right? I'd have to dig up the entire state all the way down to where I hit ocean. That's not possible for me to make that claim. So for someone to make the claim that they know that there is no God, then that means what? They'd have to examine all knowledge in all places and all time, 
or they would have to be omniscient, omnipresent, and eternal. Those are three attributes of God. That's a problem, right? This one wasn't introduced to me while I was still yet a, an atheist. I figured it out later um, after God had saved me. But yeah, this one would have definitely wrecked my day if, if someone would have confronted me with this. So agnostic atheists, as I like to call them, are those who deny God's existence based on some type of evidence that they see um, in the world. So agnosticism simply means not knowing or no knowledge. They just claim that, I don't know, um, I don't have enough knowledge. And I call them agnostic because they say that they've looked at the evidence and have concluded that there's no God. But here's the cool part. They say that they're open if there is further evidence for God's existence. So that conversation is usually a lot more fruitful. And they're the ones who usually believe in a higher power, just not necessarily God. Right. If, if they do believe in a higher power. Right. Yeah, some completely reject it, but at least they're open to it. They understand the logical fallacy of claiming to know that there's no God. I think, isn't that class also the ones that are mad at God? Oh yeah, no doubt. And that you'll come across a lot of folks like that. So usually, usually they're mad... They're mad at God for some reason or another, and the reason has nothing to do actually with God, right? How many folks have you talked to that say, oh, I was hurt by the church? No, you were hurt by a church, so don't go back to that one, right? Or a person in that church, so don't go back to that person. That has nothing to do with the creator at all. He himself didn't do that. That's what I tell my kids, that Jesus... Had a problem with religious people. Yeah, yeah. Yes, actually, exactly. yeah. If you look at all the times that Jesus lost it in the scriptures, it was to the religious elite. It wasn't to the folks on the street, to the average unsaved. So weak atheists, they simply exercise no faith in God. Um, it might be better explained as a person who lacks belief in God the way a person might lack belief that there's a green lizard in a rocking chair on the moon right? It's not an issue. He just doesn't believe it or not. It's, it's really, eh, whatever. But like I said, these folks are the ones that give me the most hope when you have those conversations with them. Finally, here's the one, uh, a group of atheists that I call the militant atheists. They are fortunately few in number. Um, they're usually highly, highly insulting, profoundly terse in their comments to any type of theist, anyone with faith particularly Christians. Um, I've encountered a few of them. You guys remember my, my story on the plane after 9-11. She was one, right? Remember that lovely encounter? They're vile, rude, highly condescending. Their language is full of insults, profanity, blasphemies. So what do you do with those ones? Well, pray for exactly. Pray. Those are those ones where, you know, Christ was talking about literally when you cast your pearls before swine. That's the one where you preach the gospel. You still preach the gospel, right? You're still given a command to do that, but it's, you're not going to have a meaningful conversation afterwards. You preach the gospel, and then hopefully you have an escape route, right? <laughs> you can not, well, if you're on a plane next to her for two and a half hours, that presents a problem. Ask me how I know. So the two main arguments from atheists that we're going to likely encounter. The first is a lack of evidence where the atheists, um, they assert that any supporting evidence isn't good enough to affirm God's existence. The second is a category where the atheist believes that the idea of God's existence just flat out doesn't make sense. It's, it's illogical to believe that, and contrary to any evidence at hand. So one position simply 
says that there isn't enough evidence to conclude that God exists, and the other says that the evidence is actually contrary to God's existence. So for those who simply lack belief and exercise no energy to talk about it, they don't really care, neither category applies because they're not really involved in the debate. They're just, let's face it, they're just too lazy to make a decision at the time, and it's not an important issue to them until it is, right? When I say until it is, at what point will that be? Well, it's probably when they're facing death, right? So a typical argument posed by an atheist to show why God doesn't exist usually works like this. You guys have heard this before. Um, fellas, you guys haven't heard this yet. This is the most common argument. It's the one I used to use that you're going to come across. It's called the problem of evil. And it goes something like this. God is supposed to be all good and all powerful. Evil and suffering exist in this world. That's a no-dust statement. Just look around. If God is all good, he would not want evil and suffering to exist. If he is all powerful, then he is able to remove all evil and suffering. Since evil and suffering exist, God is either not all good, which means he's not perfect and not God, or he's not all powerful and limited in abilities and scope. Since either case shows that God is not all good and powerful, then he does not exist. You guys have heard of some form of that argument, I'm assuming. So the problem is that the, the criticism in this argument is what's known as a false dichotomy. Um, so there's more than two possibilities, right? Namely, God might have a reason for allowing evil and suffering. We don't account for that. Man's freedom might require the allowance of evil and suffering. We don't account for that in the argument, right? So to just leap that since evil and suffering exist, so therefore God can't exist, it doesn't work. Um, it, it makes too far of a leap and you don't account for man in that point. So basic tenets of your atheistic friends and what they believe. So presuppositions are important to us all. What do I mean by presuppositions? We all uh, live our life with certain presuppositions. Did you guys have any doubt that the sun was going to come up this morning? Nope. You had that presupposition that the sun was absolutely going to, to rise today, right? Um, I have a presupposition that every word in my Bible is the infallible, inspired, inerrant word of the living God. I don't have doubts on that. I'm a little different because I did once but they were proven to me to be invalid, so I have a little bit more basis. But most Christians I've encountered also have that same presupposition. And we, we look at our world through all these presuppositions all the time. The atheist has a set of these too, and there's no definitive organization, right? You can't go to the, like the worldwide organization of atheists that defines their absolutes, but there's basic principles that they um, hold on to. There is no God or devil. That's number one. So, right, do with that one with you will. There's no God or devil. Huh, then where does the evil come from? Or how can you call anything evil? At that point, you can only say, I prefer it that you don't enter atrocity here, you know, rape, kill, eat, mutilate my family, but you can't say it's an evil act and you can't say it's wrong. There is no supernatural realm, but this is all there is. No spiritual realm at all. Miracles cannot occur has anyone ever been witness to an actual miracle? Okay, I know my wife has. Awesome. There's no such thing as sin as a violation of God's will. The universe is materialistic and measurable. Man is only material, no spiritual. Generally, evolution is considered an absolute fact. And ethics and morals are relative. What do I mean by relative? 
it only applies to the person expressing them at the point. So that you know, what's true for you is not true for me kind of argument. So a lot of folks may not be aware of it, but within this, there's different kinds of these folks. In many, many years of my conversations with them, I discovered that not all of them are the same. Some believe in the supernatural. Yeah, there are some atheists I've had conversations with that actually do believe in the supernatural. However, it comes to the fact of like believing in ghost hunters on TV or something along those lines, but yet they do admit that there's more than just um, metaphysical stuff here on this planet right now. Some believe that they know God does not exist or others do not. Some are materialist, naturalist. The general commonality between all of them is that they function without affirming God's existence. Um, that's, that's the baseline point. In other words, their consideration of our origin, our development, morality, all of it, God is not a consideration when any type of phenomena are explained or deriving moral obligations. Some atheists are aggressive, some are passive, some are polite, some are quite rude. The differences are almost as varied as there are individuals. Now, some atheists actually practice religious rituals. Yeah, they do. They will practice some type of religious ritual, though there are few. They do so for cultural or family reasons. Mm -mm. Like they will um, pray with you at dinner if that's your family norm, even though that they don't believe in it. So let's step back at that. Okay, if you have an atheist family member that prays with you guys during family mealtime, because that's what your family does, I have to question, then how much do you hold on to that atheistic belief? Would we, as Christians, do something or participate in something that is absolutely fundamentally wrong and flies in the face of our faith? I mean, um, to use the most horrid example, of course, in far reaches of savage uh, countries, there are still human sacrifice, infant sacrifice. Would we participate in that because it's just, a, it's just what they do in that culture? Absolutely not. We would make it a point to stand away from that. Why? Yeah, Tim. I would not stand up to someone who wanted to get married and they were homosexual. Right, there's another good case. I have tons of friends, but I would not attend their wedding. Mm -hmm. Yep, because it's a cultural norm. So I have to ask, yeah, Rick, did you have a question? Well, I guess one of the things I would say for those people that do that, I think some of them that believe your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth are just accepting the fact that my truth is different than your truth, so they have no problem with praying with you at dinner, even though they think it's a fairy tale. Tolerance. Yeah. Or it's a tolerance thing. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But then that leads to, we'll get into that later, but then that leads into the nature of truth, right? It, sure. it, it can't be truth at that point. It's just preference at that point. Yeah, so is, but is it mockery? That's a good question, Margaret. I don't know. You mean like if they're praying with us, is it mockery? Right. Some, some could be. Yeah. Some could just be a sign of respect. Well, I feel like right. most, most atheists that I've run into that do that, they're just being quiet and respectful while you do your yeah. religious thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but they're hard. Yeah. yeah. And I've run into those as well. I've also read a book where a, a person was a Christian who was in the Muslim um, area doing much you know, yeah. ministry, and they went into mosques and would pray alongside the people in the mosque, but they were praying to the Lord. Yeah. Right. And so they felt that they could establish relationship with the Muslim people being in the mosque 
they knew they were, it was the missionary themse- uh uh-huh. himself who was in the mosque and they were invited to come in, which seems odd too, but it they, does. they yeah. felt that they could establish relationship by being in there. So they and, and I absolutely agree with that. I mean, we have the example from Paul with eating meat sacrificed to idols, right? Paul said if it's going to offend somebody, then don't do it. But otherwise, it doesn't matter. It's just good barbecue. Those idols don't exist. I don't care. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to eat some brisket. Wouldn't that be akin to like going in a bar and drinking with somebody? Well, you can go in the bar and have seven up. Yeah, I know, but it's the appearance of. Yeah. Like two people, opposite sex living together. Right you know, gives the appearance of. Yeah, and that's one thing, and that's going to be a personal conviction issue, and then Paul argues for that, right? Where he says, if it's the, if it's sin to you, then it's sin to you, but it's not sin to everyone else, and that's or a personal conviction issue. Someone else's yeah. yeah, someone else's stumble, right? Um, and I've encountered many atheists who think that religion is actually beneficial to society. There are atheists who are extremely aggressive. Um, there are atheists who are polite and can talk about their position without becoming rude. And those ones are the best ones to have the conversation with. So now let's dive into history a bit. There was a guy by the name of Thomas Henry Huxley, and he was an English biologist who was nicknamed Darwin's bulldog because he had a staunch support of Darwin's theory of evolution. And Huxley is also credited with coining the term agnostic. That's where it came from. It was from Thomas Huxley. So, following in his footsteps, his grandson, Julian Huxley, wrote the following about when a person should assume a position of agnosticism. He said this, I believe that one should be agnostic when belief, one way or the other, is mere idle speculation, incapable of verification, when belief is held merely to gratify desires, however deep-seated, and not because it is forced on us by evidence, and when belief may be taken by others to be more firmly grounded than it really is and so come to encourage false hopes or wrong attitudes of mind. See, Huxley felt that all our life long we're oscillating between conviction and caution, faith and agnosticism, belief, and a suspension of belief. So a formal definition of Huxley's agnostic term today is this, quote, a person who holds that the existence of the ultimate cause as God and the essential nature of things are unknown and unknowable are that human knowledge is limited to experience. So from this description, it can be said that an agnostic's position is one where he says that he doesn't know if God exists. Speaking more broadly, some agnostics state that it's difficult to hold any truth with certainty. However, this position leads to um, some cultural atrocities, right? So I I keep meaning to bring it in. Um, I have a hundred year edition uh, because Darwin's book on the origin of the species was published in 1859. I have a 1959. So on 1959, the 100 year anniversary of it, they published the full title of Darwin's book. Yeah, you're laughing because you know the full title. The full title isn't on the origin of the species. It's on the origin of the species or the struggle of ri- life through the preservation of favored races. Can we think of any other people in history that thought that there was a favored race? Where did they get the idea from? Uh, it was from Huxley and from Darwin, right? So let's go into agnosticism, types of agnosticism. Again, just like with atheism, it takes two forms, hard and soft with your agnostics. The hard agnostic says that a person can't know anything for sure. You just can't know truth. Anyone see a problem with that? 
I just issued an absolute statement. You can't know truth. That's a problem, right? So it just, it just, yep, it just broke down right there. It's self-defeating. When he says that you cannot know anything for sure, it has no container uh, to keep its universal solvent, and it becomes an untenable position, and it just, it doesn't work at all once you point that out. Hopefully that person is a logical thinker, and once you point that out, it'll work. So soft agnostic says, I don't know, man. I don't know if we can know anything for sure. I'm just going to do my best. Um, it's not the lack of human ability for knowing a particular truth. It's rather the agnostic who struggles with the truth claim to be verified, to be shown true to him or not. So how do we know? And how do we know that we know or even what we know? What the issue determining the existence of the Christian God is added to the mix, things get even stickier with the agnostic. But perhaps it doesn't need to be the case when you're having these conversations. What if a person truly follows and applies uh, young Huxley's, Julian Huxley's criteria for determining when to be agnostic on a particular truth claim? This is where it starts to get fun. What would be the end result when Huxley's measures are applied to the claims of the New Testament and specifically to the account of Jesus Christ? Okay, let's look at young Huxley's tenets. His first condition is that a belief cannot be mere idle speculation or be incapable of verification. Okay, that first standard seems reasonable as pure conjecture or hearsay can't be a basis for committing oneself to a belief. That makes sense. I'm not gonna believe in you know, screaming blue ants because somebody told me that they were screaming blue ants. The second condition appears logical and it's sometimes turned, uh, if you want the fancy name, the principle of falsification. And it's used by philosophers such as Anthony Flew in his initial writings on religion. So, idle speculation in Christianity. How do the claims of the New Testament Christianity hold up under this first criteria? When the legal historical methods for determining truth are applied to the New Testament, it stands actually very firm under Huxley's standard. The writers of the New Testament never state that their beliefs were based on hearsay. Not once. We've been hearing this whole time, Pastor Ben going through Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is com combating what? Hearsay. You have heard it said, right? He's combating oral tradition. The writers of the New Testament never, never claim that the events that they're writing are based on hearsay or events that cannot be authentic. Authentic. Someone help me. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Tongue died. <laughs> Authenticated. There we go. Quite the opposite. As apostles as Peter say, quote, for we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty in 2 Peter 1.16. The disciples recorded occurrences, actual occurrences that happened in actual space and time. They saw these events with their own two eyes and recorded Jesus' life, death, and resurrection so that others would know the truth of what had happened. So in terms of falsification, the Apostle Paul gave the enemies of Christianity a single truth claim that, if proven untrue, would crumble and destroy Christianity in an instant. What is it? It's the resurrected body, right? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith also is in vain in 1 Corinthians 15. So that is the biggest point, is that empty tomb. Paul says if the resurrection of Christ did not occur, then the Christian faith is literally empty. It's completely in vain. And Paul says this is how Christianity can be falsified. Find the body of that Jewish carpenter. 
and the Christian faith is completely undone. Now, here's the fun fact about that. Even your most devout, atheistic, anti-Christian scholars today admit that that tomb was empty. Where we differ, and I've given a talk on this before, is how that tomb became to be empty, right? Some of their theories on why the tomb became empty, they just don't hold up. Um, One is that the disciples stole the body. That doesn't make sense for a lot of reasons. Number one, a Roman centurion was not just one man, it was uh, like a platoon of men, highly trained men. These are like the Roman version of Navy SEALs. So you mean to tell me a couple fishermen from Galilee are going to come take over a platoon of Navy SEALs barehanded, completely eliminate these guys, and then roll themselves a, what, at least two-ton stone out of the way and steal a body Oh, and by the way, they're later going to be killed in horrific ways for this, what they know to be alive. What sense does that make? The other explanation is what's called the swoon theory. You guys may have heard that one, that Jesus wasn't dead. He had merely fainted and then walked out of that tomb. Again, you have an issue. A recently crucified and beaten man overtook a Navy SEAL regimen, right, basically. He rolled himself a two-ton stone out of the way, And he walked miles on recently crucified ankles and appeared to people like he was just totally fine. That's not going to work either. So earlier in that same chapter, Paul actually challenges his readers of that day to go check for themselves to see if that tomb was empty. Remember? Quote, he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep, meaning died. Then he appeared to James and all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also, 1 Corinthians 15. Paul is literally asking his readers to verify his claims with many others, over 500 alive at the time, who saw Christ can act as witnesses to validate the fact that Jesus' resurrection actually occurred. Okay, but given that we can't do that today, obviously, we're a couple thousand years removed from this, how can modern-day people know that Paul and the other apostles were actually telling the truth, to use young Huxley's uh, tenets? The apostles answer that question through their grave markers. All except John were martyred for their testimony. All of them were martyred except for John. People may be deceived and die for a lie, but no one dies for what he knows to be a lie. All the apostles had to do to save their lives was what? They just had to recant their testimony of Christ and Christ raising from the dead. That's all they had to do, and to avoid an absolutely horrific death, but none of them did. In my opinion, I don't think you can have a greater evidence of the resurrected Christ than that. I've given the example before. Um, only a handful of us are, are chrome enough to remember the Watergate um, fiasco, and we remember that those guys started folding immediately. It was like two hours once they were offered immunity, these 12 guys. It took them like two hours to start folding because they got immunity from Congress for the Watergate scandal. That's nuts. These guys went years and died horrifically and never recanted because of it. So moving on from Huxley's first criterion, so brings the discussion to his second and third standards, which are, well, they're almost identical in nature. Huxley says that a belief should be discarded if the sole purpose is to satisfy some psychological desire and if the belief isn't well-grounded from a reality perspective, producing uh, false hopes in its target. Okay, so this benchmark measure for a belief is certainly rational and is the only reason to believe anything 
is that the particular thing is actually true. All right, now we get to have fun. Oftentimes the um, psychiatrist Sigmund Freud is quoted to show how religion fails such a test. He says, speaking of religious beliefs, they are illusions, fulfillments of the oldest, strongest, and most urgent wishes of mankind. We call a belief an illusion when a wish fulfillment is a prominent factor in its motivation. And in doing so, we disregard its relation to reality, just as the illusion itself sets no store by verification. Okay, using Freud's analogy that religion is only based on a wish fulfillment. Okay, did, did everyone go to first service this morning? Did you guys hear Pastor Ben's sermon on loving your enemy? What part of that is wish fulfillment? What part do you guys wish that would make you love someone who absolutely despises you? Someone who spits in your face? Someone who robs you, who beats you? What do you mean, what part? Well, according to Freud, we would only believe in Christianity because it's fulfilling some wish or desire of ours. So how would you desire, what would be your desire to love somebody like that? You wouldn't. Wish to, well, unless we wish to please God. <laughs> exactly. That's the point. Right, right. See, by, by Freud's example, we shouldn't. There's no valid reason why anybody should believe in Christianity because it doesn't fulfill a wish. It actually goes completely against the grain of human nature. It calls us to love our enemies. It calls us to sacrifice ourselves. It calls us to serve a higher authority. Nothing in human nature. Uh, no, nothing about us. Yeah, nothing about us no. does anything about that. See, Freud's criteria does nothing to prove or disprove God because his sword actually cuts in both directions, right? So couldn't it be true that atheists have wishes and urges of their own? I did. I wanted to be left the heck alone. I wanted to live my life the way I wanted to live my life. I wanted to do all of the worldly things. Just leave me alone, right? Perhaps it's a wish that God will call them to account one day for their actions and that it doesn't exist. I was hoping for that. Such a desire can be very motivating and drive a person to hold an atheistic position, whether they want to admit it or not. In reality, Freud's words, they don't have any power to determine if the truth claims of Christianity are valid or not. Freud's thoughts aside, so how does the New Testament stand up against Huxley's second and third standards, as it does with his first measure? Well, <laughs> surprise, spoiler alert, extremely well. So from a legal historical perspective, no document from antiquity even comes close to the New Testament where passing the general criteria for judging the validity of the historical work is concerned. As I've said before, we had an entire um, lecture here. You can go back and, and read it, or not read it, listen to it, rather. The New Testament passes the most stringent bibliographical test for any historical document. We have the most evidence for the New Testament. Then, let me rephrase that. Of any historical document in history, as far as recreating the original, we have the most evidence for the New Testament, by far. We have almost 6,000 different manuscripts for the New Testament written between uh, 15 to 20 years from the originals that we have, like the John Codice. The nearest one, um, which is uh, Caesar's Gaelic Wars, um, that one is written a thousand years after the fact. We have six copies of it. That's the nearest one in history, right? I mean, when you take a look at the physical evidence, it's astonishing. Second, as many have said, the New Testament, it's not written like a lie. Have you guys read it? The New Testament writers would not have invented the stuff that they wrote about. They write about some very damning stuff to a, a first century Jew. 
such as Jesus being buried by a member of the Sanhedrin, women being the first witnesses of Christ's resurrection, and other things. These are actually damning accounts. It discredits the account, actually, in first century Judaism to have women be the first witnesses. That doesn't work. That's a horrible, a horrible account. So what's found is a strong commitment to accuracy no matter where the evidence led them. See, we see such dedication in the pen of Luke, Dr. Luke, inasmuch as many as have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. It seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things that you have been taught. That's Luke 1, 1 through 4. Do we know any other doctors that have that exact same personality that maybe attend Calvary Chapel? (laughs) (laughs) Any of you ever talk to Mike? He is exactly that way, right? It might be a doctor thing. Lastly, as has already been pointed out, the New Testament writers, they died for their testimony. So theologian and professor Peter Kreef says this, why would the apostles lie? If they lied, what's their motive? Did you ever ask yourself that? Why? What's the motive? What did they have to gain from it? All they got out of it was misunderstanding, rejection, persecution, torture, martyrdom. I don't see any benefits of that. It's not like they were getting wealthy, not by any stretch of imagination. So the treatment Kreef lists um, isn't desirable from a psychological perspective, and it would produce false hopes in the disciples as they would obviously know their claims were false if they were lying. So adding to this argument from above, we see that the New Testament accounts overcome Huxley's second and third rules for being agnostic. So in the end, the person who claims to be agnostic about Christianity, but actually uses young Huxley's own criteria for determining whether or not he should be agnostic, is going to have to seriously reconsider his position, just like I did all those years ago. With the hard agnostic position being ruled out as self-defeating, the soft agnostic position being challenged by the compelling evidence of the New Testament, the more reasonable conclusion for the agnostic to reach, once everything has been examined, in my opinion, seems to be Christianity is true. Any questions on this? So what was your response to your friend who is preaching to you or sharing the gospel with you? You weren't so militant with him, or you weren't militant. I wasn't, be- were... because he's my good friend. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't, so, want, to be, I didn't want to be a jerk, right? Was he the one that helped you come to Christ? Yeah, in in a roundabout way. Um, So to kind of give you guys the Reader's Digest version of my salvation story, right? So here I am, um, atheist, befriended a a guy in high school, our freshman year of high school. We're still friends to this day, really good friends. And I'm from Southern California. So one of our jams in Southern California is In-N-Out Hamburger. Okay, I love In-N-Out Hamburger. It's, It's my thing. So here I am at UCLA uh, Med School trying to disprove Christianity, and I'm getting so frustrated because everything I can disprove doesn't work. I can only prove Christianity, and I'm really getting bothered by this. And my buddy would, all throughout high school and everything, he would give little snippets about um, his faith or um, the gospel, but he really wouldn't be, um, like, you know, hammering me over the head with it. But he would definitely... No, let me know that he was a Christian and he let me know what the gospel message was. He, he always made sure of that. And here I am at the pinnacle of my atheistic faith, or the crossroads rather, 
And he knows my mind is super scientific, right? I have to be convinced of something in order to believe it in my heart. And I had just gotten into a pretty horrific vehicle accident. Um, my truck went head on with another vehicle on a bad highway. Um, back then I had a little single cab Chevy S10, 1998 Chevy S10. And I mean, if I showed you guys pictures of this truck, that thing was accordion so bad you can fit it into the bed of my truck now right, and drive it. It was no reason I should have walked away from this thing. So my legs messed up, can't move around, can't go to the gym. My buddy Kagan calls me, he's like, hey man, what are you doing? <laughs> what do you think I'm doing, dude? <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm not hiking, I'm sitting at home watching TV, it's like the only thing I can do. He's like, cool, I'll be over. So he brings over a bag of In-N-Out cheeseburgers and fries and like 17 hours worth of Kent Hovind Creation Science DVDs. <laughs> 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 yep. <laughs> right? I mean, so what can I do? <laughs> I can't run away. And he brought food, like my favorite food. <laughs> so, so my response to him, see, even though I was militant to most people, I loved my buddy because, well, he had that relationship with me, number one. Um, so this is meant, this story is meant to give you guys hope. So those people that you have built that relationship with um, that are the, the atheists, I mean, if you do something like that, they're still going to respond to you because they love you as a person still. They somehow hate the God that we worship, right? But it should give you a lot of hope. Thanks for bringing that up, babe. Um, yeah, and then after the end of that day, I mean, there was, there, <laughs> there was no going back. I'm like, that's it. I'm done. All right, God, save me, please. So you started watching the movies. You watched oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, we sit, sat in the man cave for like the whole day. It's like 12 hours. You sat and watched the movies. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's Dr. It's Dr. Kent Hovind. Um, DrDino.com is his ministry. Uh, creation Science Evangelism. Yeah. Because that was, that was the main thing that I was really struggling with was, you know, I was able to do all the archaeology and stuff on my own research, but I was having issues with the creation science stuff. And he's like, hey, man, I got just the thing. But you were also having problems with the creation science because evolutionists couldn't tell you no. why we believe, why they believe in evolution. No, ev yeah, they, evolutionists were, it, it, was, it was crazy. Um, they were asking you to have a crazier faith in that. Than they were, they were. The evolutionists were asking me to have a crazier faith because just before this and what really, I mean, just before this day, I mean, um, I'm, I'm in class, you know, and even back then, Gosh, what was UCLA? It was like 63, 64 grand a year or something to go there. This is like in the 90s. That's ridiculous, right? Who could afford that in the 90s? Um, so here I am paying this amount of money. Not really. I was scholarship, praise God. But if I had been, that would have sucked. So here I am, <laughs> you know, uh, at UCLA, and the professor ends up basically saying in the class, in the beginning, nothing exploded and produced everything. What? Raise my hand. Yes, Mr. Kirk. Did you legit just say nothing exploded, produced everything? Yes. What? <laughs> you know, like, are you, are, you for, are you for real? Yes. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me at this point. Because I'm, right? I'm at UCLA. And I'm paying, you know, world-class tuition to hear nothing exploded, produced everything. I'm, I'm like, okay, so the basic philosopher in me knows from nothing, nothing comes. That's just the basic tenet. That's not a hard thing to come up with. And my other good buddy from high school... Um, worked for the CIA, and we've been able to play with some epic explosives, like some really cool stuff. 
And I've never seen an explosion produce anything. It messes some stuff up. <laughs> so both the tenets of your argument, Professor, are just stupid. I'm out. Dropped out of med school that day. So, yeah, it, I mean, to, to hear that, that that was their, their actual reasoning. Like, this was the best and brightest, right? Nothing exploded, produced everything. Wow, you've got to be kidding me. So, and Kagan showing up with uh, the Dr. Hovind videos, I mean, showed that there's, and burgers, of course, but there's actual, he spoke, love he spoke my love language. <laughs> I mean, there's actual evidence for creation science, like real bona fide evidence, right? I mean, just like with any other scientific pursuit, you're going to have theories on both sides. I mean, can I emphatically prove that creation existed. No, because it denies the first law of the scientific principle. I wasn't there. I can't repeat it, right? However, that works just for the atheists too, the evolutionists. Were you there? You can't repeat it, period. So they're both faith-based systems. However, I believe in the beginning God. They believe in the beginning dirt. I think mine is more plausible. I mean, this computer isn't going to sit here in all of its parts and pieces and just randomly put itself together and, and function into a perfect working tablet. Well, heck, you got to have something to even build the parts and pieces. And as I began to realize that, uh, game over for my atheistic faith. Absolutely game over. But to hold on to that, though, guys, that those people that you have built those relationships with, they're going to listen to you because they love you. I was a jerk to a, it's a bigger, um, or a lot easier to be a jerk to a, a stranger that I was talking to who was a Christian because I don't have any, what's going to happen, right? But... To my buddy, whom I had the relationship with, and he brought food, it, it, was, it was much uh, harder for me to be a jerk to him. And praise God, because we had that relationship all those years. Anyone come to mind? I mean, obviously. But the, <laughs> right. thing is, the thing is, our kids won't no, listen they won't. to us. But what we can do is praise somebody they respect. Yep. I mean, it'd be a glorious day if my son listened to me. He won't. He's actually probably most volatile with me. So you have one that will and one that won't. Yeah. And the reason he, they're most volatile with us is because they're safe doing so. They know our love won't change. Yeah. Right. And mom is the, is the, mom and God are the two easiest to be mad at. Yeah, absolutely. And that's good, babe. Yeah, that's why they are the most volatile because they know mom's not gonna, not gonna, you know, throw them out on their ear. It doesn't work that way with moms. Any other questions, guys? So it's kind of a left-handed compliment. <laughs> yeah. Right? Exactly. <laughs> kind of a smack across the face compliment. <laughs> my my mother-in-law said she was agnostic. Till I said, "Well, that's Latin for ignoramus." She said, and she intel she was an intelligent woman, and she prided herself on uh -huh. her intellect. And she said, "Oh, I guess I better not be that." <laughs> 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 any other questions i hope all this stuff makes sense um and we'll keep going through the atheistic uh, beliefs and and philosophies because this is this is just the surface of it right when you start to talk with an atheist um because all the other stuff that you're going to encounter out there any other conversation that you have abortion um you know homosexuality whatever this is its root cause right here. It's just that fundamental belief that God doesn't exist and then how they end up getting to that belief is, is what we're going to be going over. I think it's important um, if you guys say, you know, hey, Sean, you're being too nerdy. 
I'll listen. You know, we won't do the, my wife is smiling. <laughs> we won't do a, a ton of the philosophy stuff, but I always think it's important to understand where ideas come from. Um, if you guys want to really, really see where they come from, um, Albert Einstein once wrote a book called The World as I See It. And then right there, it's, it's a short little book. And if you read that, then you're going to get a big eye, eye opener of, wow, that's why they believe what they believe. Einstein wasn't a, a, a man of faith. However, because of his science, which is super cool, he did believe in a higher power merely because of what? Because energy cannot be created nor destroyed. So where did it come from? So, I mean, you can, you can use science just like on me. No other questions? No? Okay, well, let's close in prayer. Father, again, Lord, we just praise you so much um, for the truth of your word. Um, God, we ask always that you'd give us those appointments. Um, and, and we know it's in your timing, God. It's absolutely in your timing. Uh, let us not be disappointed with our results, but just realize that it's you uh, who is the one that is working out salvation in the hearts of those that we love. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen.